Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. If you've ever read a graphic novel, or if you're like my kids and you only want to read graphic novels, you owe a debt of gratitude to our guest this morning, Oakland's Daniel Klaus. With his groundbreaking works like Ghost World, Klaus brought cartooning into a new realm, and a whole generation or two of artists have looked to and learned from his work. With his latest book, Monica, Klaus shows off a mastery of genre after genre, bending them to his main story and reminding us of the pulp ancestry of his art and the depth of his reckoning with the cruelties of the world. He's coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal, and I'm delighted to be joined here in Studio B by Oakland legend and groundbreaking cartoonist Daniel Klaus. His previous graphic novels include Ghost World and Patience, and he's got a new and highly anticipated book, Monica, his first in seven years. It uh, comes out next week from Fantagraphics. Welcome, Dan. Hello. Hey, I think we're having a little uh, technical difficulty here. Um, here I'm going to start with this New Yorker cover that you drew for a sci-fi issue about it was about a decade ago. And there's sort of a New Yorkery cocktail party going on. And then there's these kind of sci-fi characters crashing through the wall. Um, is that kind of how you see your own appearance in the sort of literary slash arts world? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, I like the idea that uh, uh, the the idea of this issue of the New Yorker was like we're gonna we're gonna like judge science fiction as literature and we're gonna like give it its proper place. And I thought it was kind of funny to make the representatives of science fiction just like a Buck Rogers, you know, <laughs> ray gun guy in a weird, you know, what they used to call a BEM, a bug eyed monster. And, a, and like a clunky robot from the 1950s. And of course, I got nothing but uh, uh, hate mail from uh, from actual science fiction <laughs> fans. You know, how dare you? <laughs> but I like the idea of, of just like this pop culture, you know, uh, this, you know, sort of colorful, crazy world interrupting this, uh, <clears throat> this like, uh, you know, dinner party with... With, uh, you know, I imagined it's like Zadie Smith and Jonathan Franzen and Jennifer <laughs> Egan. <laughs> I, you know, it's interesting because genre is something that I almost feel like has is, is gone away in some ways. But this kind of genre that, that we're talking about, I have a kind of genre jealousy. Like I see, I see it now in ironic genre stances. But you, you got to actually experience, I think, these comics that were kind of just what they were, this kind of pulp genre. 
Yeah, I, I grew up in the 1960s, and I had an older brother, 10 years older, who bought comics uh, every week uh, throughout the 1950s. And so I inherited his stack of science fiction comics, humor comics, romance, war. They all had a, you know, a singular theme, and then the stories were, were very formulaic, and they were, they were drawn by people who hated comics, did not want to be drawing comics. And somehow through that, they, uh, in, their, in their sort of disdain and self-loathing, they expressed these very truthful things in the images without really even intending to, I think, very kind of unconsciously. Huh. I mean, you do see that. You know, I, I recently was in Point Arena and saw Pee-wee's Big Adventure, which I don't know if you've seen that <laughs> recently. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's mind-boggling. It, it was I. I can't. Uh, I can't believe how horrific it is in parts for a, a movie that kids saw. Oh yeah, it's, and that was pitched kind jarring. of as a kids movie. Yeah. yeah, and then all of a sudden it's like a Toby Hooper film. <laughs> <laughs> but it's strange because it does work through a bunch of sort of genre conventions from the movies of that time, which now I don't think my kids even get that anymore. Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, certainly in in this book, Monica, I was I set out to s- sort of try to tell her story through genres, and uh, and as I got kind of halfway through the book, I realized that I was sort of in the way that a life kind of amasses different genres and kind of combines them into other things and revisits them. I I wound up like layering the genres on top of each other so that by the end you're in a, in a chaotic mess of of mixed genres. <laughs> and uh, but but my original intention was to do this very pure book where it started out with a war story and then it had a romance story and then a uh, like a a ghost story. The Mad you know, magazine. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I loved that idea, but it, it to do it in a way that felt real, it 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 was much more complicated than that. It was hard to stick to those genres. You know, there's an artist character in the book, um, and I I didn't know if he was sort of speaking for you when he you know kind of walks through his nasty kitchen and he looks at the wall and he says, "This wall stain from a childhood root beer mishap. It's as fully a part of my own visual canon." As the color of the sky or my mother's <laughs> face. <laughs> so I, I literally had a childhood root beer mishap at my grandmother's house. And there was this very distinctive wall stain that somehow just never got painted over and and stayed there. You know, it was like a palimpsest where it was, you know, layers of of crap moving in front of it, but it was always there. So that, that felt very real to me. So interesting. And and it is one of those things where you you have talked about where some of the images in this book have come from. And it does seem like you've drawn from essentially a lifetime of remembering images drawn from literally everything from like William Hogarth to like, uh, you know, a random Life magazine cover. Yeah, I mean, it's... I wanted this book to be uh, to be like pure inspiration from start to finish, which is it's it's a nebulous term, but uh, I, I can tell when I'm reading, especially a comic, I can tell when the artist was inspired, and it was something that that they put in that's not necessarily there to like appeal to a reader, but is has an energy for them that they want to transmit 
to the reader. And uh, and then I can tell when it's being faked, when it's like, you can even see fake inspiration, you know, where it's like, oh, yes, this was very uh, meaningful to me. And yet you feel like I, it feels trite or, or cliche. So I wanted to I wanted to try to like take the time and effort to do a book that every panel had that for me. Uh, like I worked in almost like a state of of like heightened excitement, you know, for the whole uh, whole run of the book. Seven years. Seven years. Yeah. I mean, it, your other books have taken a while, but none have taken this long is that because you had to wait for the inspiration or was it just actually executing at the level that you wanted to and that people have come to expect from you just kind of takes a really long time it was a little of both uh you know in in previous books i'd always i remember uh chuck close had a had a quote you know what 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 do you use for inspiration he said inspiration is for amateurs And I remember thinking, like, yeah, I'm a pro. I that's true. I never. I don't have to wait around. Get for my lunch pail, and I <laughs> exactly. go to work. Yeah. Like Roy Lichtenstein would would get there at nine in the morning, work, t- take his lunch break, and leave at five. You know, that's right. We're professionals, but uh, but I realized that was not true at all, and and that if I waited and let thoughts sift and coalesce. The ideas are much deeper and, and stronger. So I wanted to do a book where I gave myself the time for that process to take place. Yeah. You know, I, I came of age reading the people who read you, you know, kind of Gen X zine makers and freaks sure. in Portland, Oregon and, and here. <laughs> and, you know, my kids now read so many beautiful, brilliant graphic novels by people who I sense have kind of never touched the original like source comic book material that you fed on as a kid. How do you think it's different to come to write now when you have some generations of folks who have been influenced by the path that you created? Yeah, I don't know. It's it, it just the the way an artist would work nowadays and you know from the start of their career would be so different than than how I began, you know, if if when I began, you might I might have learned of like seen one panel by an artist in a in a book of like you know the history of comics, and then I'd have to like figure out how to see more of this artist's work, and it would be almost impossible. I have to I'd go to the used bookstores, nothing, you know. I'd finally like do go through mail order and order old comics and things like that, and it would it it would just be so difficult to learn about it. So that when you finally did learn about it, and that often f- came when you'd find some older comics guy who knew knew the, the good stuff and how to get to it you would you'd feel like it was this hard won victory and you'd feel like this guy is mine you know this is my like i earned this and we i have a real kinship with this artist and now you know i'll learn about some uh you know like an obscure japanese artist for example somebody that would have been impossible to find and i can all of a sudden you know go on Tumblr and find you know eight hundred <laughs> images, but and and by the end of like Friday, it's like I'm an expert on this artist, and and then two weeks later, I'm like, well, what was that guy's name again? Right. <laughs> and so it's just not the same process of like where it becomes like ingrained into your personality, and it it's almost like a detective story where you're searching down the work of of uh, of the artist, and and it's uh, it's like a quest almost. Huh. I mean, do you, I feel like there's a yearning in there too for, 
maybe like subcultures that could exist and flourish and grow maybe without the outside attention or the ability to, you know, connect across the globe? Well, I love that too. I love the idea of, of uh, like living in your own little private world and not thinking about how it relates to anybody else or any or the culture at large. And, and you know, I, f- I feel like all artists kind of want to be that. They want to be like their own little sui generis thing in their own little world and, and, uh, and you know, uh, like exploring their own territory and not, uh, not having to respond to anybody else. But then we all, you know, I, I work on my books with that in mind. And then I go back and look at it and go like, oh, yeah, this was clearly informed by, you know, the Iraq War, or the Bush presidency. You know, mm-hmm. you, you see all the things that were, were infiltrating your thoughts uh, you know, while you listen to KQED as you <laughs> as you rule out your panel borders, <laughs> we're talking with Daniel Klaus, cartoonist and graphic novelist, and uh, we'll claim him for Oakland, though he grew yeah. up in Chicago. Uh, his latest book is Monica. His previous graphic novels include Ghost World and Patience, and many many others. Uh, what questions do you have for Dan about Monica or his other works or career? Uh, you can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. You can find us Twitter, Instagram, threads, or KQED Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're joined this morning by Daniel Klaus, cartoonist, graphic novelist, a, a real legend in the field. And he's got a new book. It comes out next week. It's called Monica. It's on Fantagraphics. Uh, first book in in seven years. Um, just describe it for, for folks. You've touched on it a little bit that you wanted to do <coughs> some you know, movement through genre in, in the book. But what's the form that it ended up taking at the end? Uh, it's a collection of nine shortish stories under 25 pages. I wanted each of them to work on their own as a sort of an independent story that you could read without the rest of the book. I'm not, I'm not sure I succeeded in that, but uh, it's basically a cradle to grave 
story about uh, a woman named Monica. And I've, I've, I learned after the, the book has come out and gotten a few reviews that, uh, that everybody thinks it's about Monica Lewinsky, which really? <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I did an, I did an interview where I very recently, where, uh, where I was talking about when I started the book, it was, it was, uh, like, uh, summer of 2016 when I first started thinking about it I had no idea what it was going to be I didn't have a title anything and uh but I in the interview I said oh I imagined it would take place during the eight years of the Hillary Clinton presidency you know like I imagined that like I sort of imagined Uh that would be the world I'd be working in nothing to do that has was not what the book was going to be about and and uh and so then this article came out and said, originally, Monica was going to be about the eight years of the Hillary Clinton presidency. <laughs> <laughs> it's modern journalism. And uh, and so then everybody was like, well, it must be like a fictional story about Monica Lewinsky. And it was like, no, no. I literally, I, I chose the name Monica because it's it's the most graphically beautiful, typographically beautiful word. It's got like the matching, the M and the A are these kind of pointed shapes on the end, and it's got the circular. It's it just would look great, and so yeah. I thought, oh, that that's that's the reason. The Lewinsky thing was just a bonus. Yeah, it was just a bonus. So <laughs> so anybody looking for the you know the secret life story of of uh, Monica Lewinsky in here, yeah, it, it's sadly not not in this. Um, it is true. I mean, you said cradle to grave, and it is really a kind of reckoning with the childhood and how maybe that never ends, that kind of reckoning. So w- what was your own childhood like? <laughs> so I, I tried, in the book, I tried to depict a very chaotic uh, childhood in, the, in sort of the throes of the uh, counterculture 60s. And um, that was very much my... my I think one of the reasons I I did this, at least that part of the book, is that I my childhood was so confusing and chaotic. I wanted to try to sort of express the way it felt emotionally, at least, without getting into the specifics. But uh, uh, I was when I was born, my parents were. Uh, were involved in auto racing, which was very weird because my dad my dad was a PhD uh, or an engineering uh, PhD at the University of Chicago, and my uh, my mom was uh, also a student there, and had been, uh, you know, was my grandfather was a professor of medieval history. So this was not the kind of family that got into auto racing. But my my mom and my father, who really were ready for a divorce five years before I was born, this was the kind of the thing they got into. To save the marriage. To save yeah. the marriage, and uh, and my uh, my, the, and they wound up actually racing in the Formula Junior circuit, which is you know sort of a low like the cheap do-it-yourself Formula One, uh, and they um, and so they hired a race car driver for their car in the in the local racing scene, and my mom wound up leaving my dad for the race car driver. Oh. <clears throat> which I didn't ever figure that out until like two years ago. <laughs> and then uh, and then he died in a crash in a in a race in uh, Elkhart Lake, Wisconsin. And <clears throat> when I was five years old, and at that point my mom uh, 
just like could not be a mom and sent me to live with my grandparents. Huh. And that's the that's the very like the simplified version, but it was pure insanity. Wow. And so what about your dad? Was he available for you as a parent? He was. He was a very uh he was a classic, you know, like post World War II dad, like a very like I don't show emotions kind of guy. <laughs> but he, no, he was a good he was a good dad, but he was uh he was not like up for being like a full-time caretaker. Yeah. In the book, Monica's mother is named Penny. Um and she definitely is sort of sucked into the the counterculture, maybe not the Formula Junior counterculture. <laughs> no, it's, the, a, it's a different. A much more like kind of recognizable from the kind of Berkeley, San Francisco kind of world, right? Can you yes. t- tell us a little more about, about Penny as a character? I think, yeah, I think of the world, you know, there's these certain areas, uh, Berkeley. I grew up in Hyde Park in Chicago near the university. It's all, it very... Uh, sort of a similar kind of college neighborhood that is kind of at the forefront of, of like progressive politics and things like that. Um, and Monica's mother, Penny, is a young woman who, who when, when all that starts happening, when this kind of hippie counterculture starts blossoming, she's she's realizes this is what she's been waiting for. Nothing's felt right. And now she's just embracing it full on, which was very much the case with my mother, who was my mother is actually quite old for the whole hippie thing. Uh, you know, she was in her 30s when that happened, but she uh, gravitated toward it like it was, you know, it just had been uh, the thing she always knew existed and somehow didn't. And now all of a sudden she could be a part of this world. And she and she never she always talked about it later on, like, oh, I wish I could go back to that time. This really made me wonder whether there could be a similar kind of counterculture in like today. Like, could there be a new culture that arises that then draws, you know, a bunch of people? There couldn't be a mass counterculture, I don't think, because everybody's so subdivided. You know, that was back when there was four TV stations. You know, everybody had the same cultural references. Everybody responded to the same things. There were... There were mass movements. It feels like now everybody's in their own little cult where they, you know, where they all have their own interests and and rules and language, language, everything, and and kind of don't even understand people in the other groups. So it feels like a an impossibility at this point. There is, I mean, a Penny, um, like many people of her time, does get sucked into a uh, a cult <laughs> i think that's fair to call them a, a cult it's unclear at first How but definitely dare cult. You. <laughs> <laughs> um where did that sort of interest come from is it from observing that like broader cultural movement of people kind of turning in inward with their their language and their lifestyle it's probably i i didn't think of it in those terms when i was working on it and then when it when I was deep into it, it felt like, oh, yes, I'm, this is just exactly how the world feels. <laughs> um, I'd always been really interested in cults. I, I, I had, you know, I grew up not in California, but I was always fascinated by that whole world of California cults. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I first moved to Berkeley, I think within two days I had walked over to where uh, – 
the apartment where Patty Smith was a uh, uh, Patty Hearst was <laughs> abducted. <laughs> you know, it was two blocks from where I lived, and I just felt like, oh my god, I'm in the epicenter of this insane, you know, American. Uh, the ber- berserk era of the 70s when when these things were blossoming. And I've, I've always been kind of terrified to by the idea of cults. Like to be in a cult seems like the most terrifying thing. Um, How come? Just, it, it just feels, uh, it, it's got a claustrophobia about it that really <laughs> makes me uncomfortable. And the, and the idea of having to, sort of play a character all day makes me very uncomfortable. It's like the, like, uh, I like the idea of being able to kind of uh, shift my personality based on the situation, you know, probably (laughs) growing up with three different sets of parents. I had three sort of distinct personalities around all of them. And and the idea of having to, uh, to like live as this one specific character in a cult seems very, uh, constricting. Yes. Yeah. I, I often try to think of like, like if I designed my own cult, what it would, what would that be? <laughs> and it, it's, I always feel like it would be so much work to be a cult leader. <laughs> you know, it's so much effort. You have to really like, you know, you have to make eye contact with everybody in the cult and really like sit down and make them feel important. And it's like, so, it's so hard to do. Is it almost not worth it? Yeah. It feels like a very long-term sales job, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, let's talk uh, a little bit about Penny's um, daughter, Monica, and title title character. Um, I actually want to talk about her towards the end of her life, and then we can sort of work backwards here. Okay. But late in her life, she's kind of living in this small, nameless, California, beautiful town, which I've decided to is Gualala, but could be. Yeah. <laughs> could be anywhere. Could be Guerneville, could be Mendocino. <laughs> yeah. And she's just there kind of vibing alone and I really loved those scenes this kind of quiet life that she's living um what kind of drew I mean that that seems like the hardest comic to draw it's sort of like the opposite of the action comic right, <laughs> right. is like doing ceramics in Guala. <laughs> you know boy we're gonna sell a lot of books with this <laughs> one. um it's uh to me, it's, it, you know, every, it, my wife and I have gone to every little town in California, you know, for a, for a weekend or so. And we, every single time we, we wind up walking over to the real estate office. Could we move here? <laughs> Could we just stay here? Seems, it seems so safe. Are you reading my and, mind right now? Yeah, yeah. exactly. And so, uh, and there's, and I feel like those towns don't exist anywhere else. It's just such a very California thing. And they you always feel like if you did move there, you'd be you'd you'd be hated by the people who live there. <laughs> you know, it's like we don't want you city folks here. Um, but uh, but I thought you know it's it's always sort of a fantasy of like just living in a small town like that, doing doing some kind of art that you don't necessarily show to anybody outside of that town or the you know the local art fairs and and just uh, keep living a very simple life. Uh, kind of by yourself, like a very solitary life. And and uh, and so I wanted to sort of give that to her for a while at the end. <laughs> um, you know, just sort of as a as a reward for all the all the other stuff I've put her through. <laughs> I did. I wanted that for her. I did I, I think, 
you you care about her through through this book in, in kind of a variety of different ways. Like you're wor- you're worried about her as a parent, then you're kind of see her as uh, more um, of of an elder who's sort of gotten to some kind of peace. And I'm not going to give away exactly what happens, but you you don't let her have that peace in some way. Like she she can't she doesn't let herself have that peace. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't know if I want to talk about it. <laughs> fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Um, you have talked about um, in the past that the different chapters of the book are also these kind of variations <laughs> on a on aloneness. Um, but you yourself, you know, you live in Oakland. You have a family. Like you are not a person who's alone per se. Well, th- thanks for ruining my whole. Th- <laughs> uh, no. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, that's of course true. But uh, I feel like aloneness is something you you acquire at a young age, and I think we all have aloneness. You know, I think whenever you know, I have friends who are constantly around, have parties every night, always have people around, and that always seems like a really profound kind of aloneness, where it's almost like mm. you're you're addicted to having. You know, you need to have people around, or you'll like fall Follow, apart, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> disintegrate. And uh, and I'm actually, I do. I mean, I'm with my wife all day, every day. But um, but we, uh, but I, I do. I feel very comfortable just being alone in a room. Which you know, as a cartoonist, you better useful <laughs> because yeah, because otherwise. Uh, you're going to be very miserable. You know, it's really about uh, sitting there all day and feeling good about that. You know, sitting at a, in a looking at a blank piece of paper and and uh, thinking your own horrible thoughts. <laughs> I mean, because these panels, right? I mean, uh, these pages they take like a week, two weeks to draw. I mean, you know, uh, the amount of work would be. Like a you know an, a seventy hour week you know something like that they they take forever. Not this is not true of all comics you know it's it's I I'm the kind of person who uh, who it's like if there's a way to do it harder <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna figure out that way. It's your fine art background. You know? yeah, yeah yeah it's I mean I'm I'm trying to I am kind of doing it like a painter a little bit I'm trying to like find my way as I do it and so that involves a lot of. Like oh this this way isn't the right way I'm gonna go and start over or redraw this or it's a lot of you know reworking after the fact yeah we're talking with Daniel Klaus cartoonist and graphic novelist I mean his latest book is Monica his previous graphic novels include Ghost World and Patience uh, if you have a question for Dan Klaus you can give us a call or send us an email the number is eight six six seven three three Six seven eight six. That's eight six six seven three three six seven eight six. The email is forum at kqed.org. Twitter, Instagram threads were KQED forum. Uh, <coughs> listener Scott writes in to say, huge Dan Klaus DC fan. Yeah. Have all the eight balls and collections and the pens on my office desk or in an eight ball coffee mug. I'm wondering if we might ever get a book of Lloyd Llewellyn in what would now be midlife or his AARP years, Reflections <laughs> of a Randy Raconteur. <laughs> wow. Well, at first, I love you, Scott. <laughs> I wish I had an eight ball mug. I broke mine in like 1985 or 95. So, uh, so 
you're you're one up on me in that in that regard. What do you what do you think though? Like when you look back, tell people a little bit about what what Eight Ball was for those who don't know. Eight Ball was was a comic book I did, uh, very small press thing in the era of you know zines and and sort of the late era of underground comics. Um, it was I. I think we called it a one-man anthology because it had all different <laughs> kinds of stories, short stories, humor pieces. Uh, I did a story called Art School Confidential in there, and there was, you know, that's where Ghost World began. And I had another long series called Like a Velvet Glove, Cast in Iron. Mm-hmm. And so I'd run segments from these longer stories. And it was it it was uh, kind of a underground phenomenon when it came out you know to my great surprise <laughs> it it caught on with uh with people outside of comics you know it was it was an era where people were doing zines and and in indie music and things like that and it kind of caught on in those circles and so that was sort of the beginning of my career yeah it's fascinating to think about um i also came up on the indie movies of the 90s yeah and I'm not sure where that scene went. Like, I'm sure that energy still exists, but I don't know where it's going now. The Yeah, I don't either. I don't either. And yeah, it's very interesting to look back at at the so-called, you know, the indie movies. And it was like, you know, Reservoir Dogs and things <laughs> right. like that. And they seem very, like, mainstream. You know, they're not, they're not weird. They're not like... Uh, Hiroshima, Mon Amour. You know, they're not experimental, ponderous... Films that are that are hard for a mass audience. No, I think they were just cheaply produced. They're just very, they're, they're, yeah. they're low budget yeah. films mostly. Yeah, yeah. We're talking with Daniel Klaus, cartoonist and graphic novelist. His latest book is Monica. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Daniel Klaus, cartoonist, graphic novelist, a, a legend, Oakland resident. Latest book uh, coming out on Fantagraphics is Monica. You know, there's a chapter in Monica called Success. And Monica has built this uh, candle empire. Uh, <laughs> I love it. That's like, yeah, it's a... Um, that is kind of what happened to a lot of the the hippie dumb, you know. It became Whole Foods, um, right? Right. Yeah. 
Ben and Jerry's or yeah, 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 right, exactly. So she's got this uh, candle business, and you know she's dealing with the fallout of gaining wealth and fame. Um, and you are probably the most successful graphic novelist of your generation. I mean, do you have you struggled with that at all, or do other cartoonists and graphic novelists, you know, maybe they don't have that level of jealousy or you know (laughs) you don't know us very well (laughs) (laughs) uh i I wouldn't i would not say i'm the most successful graphic novelist but uh but that's very kind of you um yeah you know it's it's something it feels very arbitrary sometimes you know there's other parts in the story that are that are about uh you know success being imbued on on one through metaphysical means and that I often think about that you know I I, uh, I it seems very unlikely that I could possibly like make a living drawing comic books that seems you know that would have been my wildest dream as a as a kid and I would have never in a million years imagined it would have come true so that feels uh, I, I'm never uh, not appreciative of that you know mm-hmm. that feels like the greatest thing that could ever happen to you but um you know that that story was also uh when i was working on movies a bit i found myself Mm -hmm. adjacent to like very rich people you know you'd (laughs) you'd go out to dinner with (laughs) producers and like the money the backers you know like Mm -hmm. the these guys are funding capital capital yeah yeah, venture (laughs) capital you know and you'd wind up at their house or going out to dinner where you had to be nice to them and uh, and so I felt like I had this uh, it was like I was a spy in this world and I could sort of see the feel kind of the the vibe of that a little bit. And but you ended up hating it, right? Didn't you start a graphic novel and get all the way through writing it and started drawing it and then just like trash can? I did not draw the whole oh. thing, but I wrote, I wrote and planned out a whole graphic novel about Hollywood and uh, and I, it would I think it would have been a good book but I just hated I, I was like getting photo reference for all the backgrounds and I was like I don't want to spend four years in Hollywood <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. I don't want to draw all that stuff and I just thought like why am I torturing myself yeah. so uh, no let's uh let's bring in Michael in San Francisco who has kind of a related question Michael welcome hi it's, it's really prescient that you that you gave us your thoughts on Hollywood what are your thoughts about um, you know, your graphic novels and your creative process and your creative aesthetic, moving that to the film world. I mean, would you sell the film rights to Monica? And how would you feel about it if you were approached by one of those rich Hollywood producers to say, hey, we think this would make a great movie? Yeah. Thanks, Michael. Thanks. Uh, you know, it. every book I do, I get some somebody wants to buy, <laughs> you know, and it's all. But uh, to me... Like, I, I'd be happy for there to be movies of my books, but I would want it to be by a, a director that I that I thought was as good of or better of an artist than I am, you know. And, th- <laughs> and that they exist out there, but what what winds up happening very often is you get a really interesting director is interested in in adapting the book, and then. And then they get bogged down or they because they're an interesting director, they have their own projects and they have millions of offers and they wind up doing something else instead. And then then whoever kind of funded this, the studio or the 
production company winds up owning the movie rights to the book, and then that winds up falling into the hands of somebody you're not necessarily, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it wasn't my idea for the director. So, or it just sits in purgatory, and more more often yeah. than not, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. My uh, one of my writer friends says, like, yeah, the natural end state of ninety nine percent of these projects is they just get bought and then just sit there. You know? I, when when other writers and artists announce their big movie deals. I think like, what are you doing? Now everybody's like, when's it going to be on? You know? <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. You have to answer the question for the don't, next day. Uh, don't, don't announce it till it's like, it's in theater Thursday. You know, yeah, like, that's yeah. it. Who who would the ideal director of Monica be? If you just, you know, just oh. talking with your wife, thinking like, <laughs> ah, you know, maybe. Max Ophels. Uh, yeah, I don't, it's, yeah, somebody... Uh, most of my ideal directors died, you know, in 1980. <laughs> <But> <laughs> Joseph von Sternberg would be excellent for. Um, I, that's a tough one. I don't know. I don't know what that movie would look like. You know, would you would you try to emulate the book and do it in nine segments with you know blackouts, or would you adapt it into a longer thing? I don't know. I mean, there was there was something about this book, particularly with its use of genre, that did have. Uh, it got me in that Quentin Tarantino mode. Not that you would want him to make this movie necessarily, but it's like it—it it has some of that feel of someone who ingested an enormous amount of mid-century popular culture right. and then output something quite different. Well, he—I mean, his uh, in what was his last film? Once upon a time in Hollywood. That—that uh, that was the only time I seen a movie about that era that felt absolutely real like the texture of it was uh it was just so uh nostalgic for me in a way i didn't expect sitting Hmm. through that movie just to hear like the the radio commercials playing on the cars going by he just got every little detail layered with such uh such intense uh memory filled detail um that uh that yeah, I can I can see the the relation. Yeah. Um, staying on the topic of of movies, I mean, one of the things that has kind of flummoxed me, at least as someone who is not like a big Marvel guy, um, is just the the way that that intellectual property, you know, the way that these <laughs> comics have become so extremely dominant in the culture. Do you think they retain? any of those comics that like your brother was buying in the 1950s <laughs> or is it just like it it's something else it's the brand of it only but it doesn't actually have any of the essence yeah i don't see any relation at all. i mean you know i the i just think of uh you know the those comics that i read i had all the early marvel comics my brother bought you know fantastic four number 1 off the newsstand and i still have a tattered copy, you know, in, in my house. Um, you know, the, those comics had like a charm. They were very, uh, it was just about characters and they were, they were not, uh, ambitious, you know, they were not, and they, they weren't, uh, they were flawed, the characters and they were, they were just goofy and, and, uh, the, the movies feel to me like, uh, you know, these uh, aggressive uber mention, you know, like <laughs> plowing through the world. They just seem so aggressive and and uh, unpleasant. You know, I'm 
thank God, you know, I don't have a young kid anymore and I don't have to ever sit through any of those again. <laughs> I still haven't seen one, um, just to, to confess. Wow, good um, for you. Um, you know, one listener asked, uh, and this this kind of goes to the the point about, you know, a, a chunk of this book does take place in this beautiful California and you were sort of like, uh, makes it sound boring. But many graphic novels in, in my mind now incorporate, you know, a, a, a wild array, it feels like, of types of feelings that are uh, and landscapes that are not just, you know, action packed. And right. so this listener asks, does Dan see a distinction between a comic book and a graphic novel. I noted that Penguin Classics is publishing classic comics. So do you see a distinction there? Uh, you know, it's a, it's a marketing term, really. You know, it's graphic, graphic novel graphic or comic? No, uh, graphic <laughs> novel. You know, co- I, I always try to use the least pretentious term I can because <laughs> you don't want to, you don't, I always thought, you know, if you told people like, I do graphic novels, you know, you've got to read these books that they would go, I'm going to try one of these graphic novels and they, bring it home and they'd look at it and go, this is a comic book. You know, I've been tricked again. <laughs> so it's much better to go like, yeah, I do these comic, you know, funny books. And they're, you know, don't don't worry about it. Don't take it seriously. <laughs> but, you know, I find myself at this point, like graphic novel has actually caught on as a as a term. People know what that means. It has a it has a specific meaning. So I find myself using it and then and then, you know, going out of my own body and mocking myself for for saying those words but, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um you know i mean you do say don't take it seriously on the other hand you open the book with the sort of <laughs> beginning slash end of the world and then you know the ascent of humankind <laughs> out of the primordial soup which feels point takes serious <laughs> yeah. um yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's one of one of the things that I love about your orientation as an artist is, you know, you 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 maintained you maintained the ironic stance that many people came up with and then kind of lose when they get a little. I want it to always be on the edge of irony where you don't quite know what side you're on. You know, is it because I might be dead serious, but you, but I want you to not quite know that I want you to feel like. Maybe this is all just a put on. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm not oriented correctly. I want to keep it. Uh, I feel like there's a real excitement on that on that edge. But if you veer off of it at all, you you kind of lose it. You know, you don't. I don't want to push it or tweak it and make it clear that you know I'm winking in this part because I'm not sure I am. I think a lot of things people take as metaphor or uh, or you know a put on. I'm dead serious. <laughs> you know, it's it's absolutely that's really what's happening and that's that's a very direct strong emotion. Um we have uh, another fan uh Enid writes in to say I'm the only Enid I know and you put <laughs> the name on the map. For the first time yes. I got to have a doll with my name on it. Sure I was already an adult, but I love it and the novel Enid's from uh from Ghost World. Ghost World. Um what's it like to have people kind of calling back to work that I, I feel, you know, it's like 25 years ago for you. Yeah. Um, is it delightful? Do you kind of feel like, you know, people are yelling like play free bird at the show? Like, how do you feel? Uh, not that. No, it, it's to me, it's it's like I didn't do it. I have nothing to do with it. You know, it's like a thing that exists on its own. Uh, Ghost World, especially the characters are real to people and they 
they never uh, think of it as like, oh, those are written by by somebody. You know, they they live in their own head, you know, in, in the reader's own heads and have their own lives. And, and it's like, you know, it's like sending your kid off to college. It's like they're out there in the world doing their own thing. And and uh, my parenting is over. Yeah, hope they hope they call. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope. <laughs> We're talking with Daniel Klaus, cartoonist and graphic novelist. This happens to be a pledge time for KQED Public Radio. Things are going great. For more information about how to support KQED, go to kqed.org/donate. I'm Alexis Madrigal. So we have a, a great question from a listener. I, I, I like this. Um, when he writes his novels, are there images that take the place of words or words that take the place of images? That is, as a non-graphic novelist who works over every description, how does he decide if an image is one panel, multiple panels, one image? I like this gets at kind of like wonderful, the craft wonderful of question. Yeah, that's I mean that's the whole thing. You know, that's <laughs> that's really what I'm doing all day every day is figuring out the answer to that question. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I. I like the idea of of an image in comics uh, as a as an, an expression of of a you know long paragraph of, in a novel explaining a setting. Hmm. You know the idea of um, you know you might read a novel and it's like you know you're in a little red house on a green field that's overlooking a stream and you know it <laughs> sets all the details and I like the idea that you have an image that says all those things. Um, but it also says a lot more than those things. You know, the reader can bring into it different ideas. They have different connections to an image than they do to to a very specific set of words. Um, it feels it feels like that's where the beauty and power of comics lies in that in that uh, that schism between that image and then what do the words say? You know, in this book. It's all narrated. It's all has captions. Um, so you're sort of hearing the inside of the mm. character's head. You know, <laughs> this is what's going on in her mind. Um, not necessarily as the scene is happening. It's mostly after it's happened. But, um, but you know, this is, this is what she's thinking. And when you see these images, is the image reality? And her thoughts mm-hmm. that might not match the image, is, are, are her thoughts delusional or... Maybe the image is delusional. Maybe I'm delusional. <laughs> you know, it's it's uh, it's such an interesting thing to to play with, and uh, more and more, that's that's my my main interest in mm. in you know composing these things. Yeah, you know, um, I read an early interview where you said that you know when you close your eyes, you're back in the Chicago of your youth. But I mean, you've been an East Bay guy for a long time now, and I wonder: Do you have like, if you were going to set the scene in Oakland, like, what is that? What what is that single panel where you'd be like, aha, <laughs> Oakland? I've drawn. I I mean, I've now lived in the East Bay more than half my life, so I feel like I'm. I've always wanted to be a Californian, I have to admit. <laughs> You've and made it. So, and so I feel like, yeah, 30, you know, 31 years, 32 years, that's that's real, you know. I'm uh so uh yeah, my, you know, my Oakland, I've drawn my Oakland many times. It, I the thing I love about Oakland is that uh 
is that it kind of it's just so uh, pared down. It's like, you know, if you go to New York, you see like 15 beautiful Art Deco buildings on a block of Madison Avenue. And you don't you don't notice any one particular one. You're sort of overwhelmed by those 15. Mm. But you go to Oakland and it's like, oh, there's the Bellevue Staten building. (laughs) You know, there's like one or two buildings. And so you can Mm -hmm. all you can kind of pare it down to the iconic few. And so, you know, I always draw the Tribune Tower in the background, uh, you know, the the MacArthur maze, and, you know, <laughs> right, just right. all these specific spots that we that we all know. Yeah. You know, um, the Monica opens with two soldiers, you know, in this uh, foxhole having this one of them is describing this like very, very intense uh, dream of kind of the end of everything. Um, coming to the end here, I mean, like, how how did you think about that opening war, you know, setup? I wanted there to be kind of a kind of an overture for the book yeah. a little bit, and yeah, and uh, and I wanted uh, I wanted it to feel like you're going in a certain direction, and then to have the that not be the direction. And you know, as as you later read read the book, you you have to wonder. Did that really happen, that story, or is that an imagining of what might have happened? They see it on television. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, mm-hmm. you know, but I really wanted to start, yeah, like with an episode of, you know, combat. <laughs> Vic Morrow's in the foxhole. <laughs> We've been talking with Daniel Klaus, cartoonist and graphic novelist. Latest book is Monica on Fantagraphics. But the publisher, previous graphic novels include Ghost World and Patience. Thank you so much for joining us. Ah, it's been great. So fun. Thank you. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis. From KQED Podcasts comes On Our Watch Season 2, New Folsom. 
a story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.